Hello and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my co-host, the wave-ridden Teos Avadia. Hey Teos, you hey, riding those I'm waves? Calling, I'm calling in from the beach, so I hope that, uh, well, I mean not at the beach, but I mean like literally I hear the waves out the window and I don't think you guys hear it, but uh, but it is it is uh, it has been quite nice a little vacation here at the grandparents' place and um, yeah I've gotten plenty of, of tanning in <laughs> and a lot of writing which has been lovely tanning and writing do you write while you tan is that how it works uh, I I in fact I did I got a a sunburn with the laptop on my knees oh, okay. so like so, the yeah. edges of the laptop can be visible on my legs that's really how cool i am that's that's when you know you're a serious writer <laughs> i'm a total dork <laughs> well we total dorks have a lot of news to cover this week and when we cover this news we will then move on to a new topic that might take us a few episodes to cover and it is 5e revisited we're going to look at where we've been with 5e and then what we think will be coming uh in the new iteration of the rules, whatever they are going to be called, based on what we've seen and based on the trends that we've seen in in the world, in role-playing games, in life. One of the things I'm excited about is is to both dream about what might be, but also because you and I are get to play, you know, armchair commentators, uh, and we're not beholden the way that members of the D and D team are. We can just pretend, like in a perfect world, what would we do with it, right? Right which I yeah. think can be kind of fun because we, we can break all the rules that if we actually worked in a place, we'd have to abide by. <laughs> right. But, but then even then, even though we don't have those rules, we still have our own biases. So yeah. I have a feeling that we may disagree on a few things. Oh, uh, we, I'm looking which, forward to it. Yeah. Which will be fun. But first this mountain of news that we must climb starts with news that just came out a few minutes ago. Uh, Spelljammer Academy has been released. What is Spelljammer Academy, you ask? It is a free adventure on D&D Beyond. It was written by Will Doyle, and it's a three-part adventure that will introduce us to Spelljammer. It looks like, based on the website on D&D Beyond, that there will be four adventures in this series, and this is part one of that. So, so part one has three parts. <laughs> this, this is true. Uh, the first part, well, first of all, the adventure is for characters, uh, first level three to seven characters, and it can lead directly into the spell jammer adventures in space adventure. Uh, by the end of this adventure, you should be second level. And it should be noted too, that based on the table of contents, it look, it looks like that the adventures league had a lot to do with this, uh, based on, you know, who would be editors and the designers and stuff were. Uh, and since, since Will Doyle, I bet it's going to be totally awesome. Uh, although I haven't had a chance to read it through yet. Uh, so what is in this adventure in these different parts? Yeah, so, so it looks like uh, I just quickly scanned it since the news just broke. But part one says, welcome to wild space. And it's a fun idea of how to do this. Very Star Trekky. The recruits undertake a quick combat trial on the simulations deck. So you are at a Spelljammer Academy, just as the name promises, located in Nimbral, an island off the Cholton coast. And you are you start in the simulations deck and you have to sort of fight waves of people that are attacking your Spelljammer and defend it. And the idea is the academy personnel are assessing your skills. Mm -hmm. Nice. Cool concept. Yeah. Yep. Part two, Academy Orientation. After the simulation, you receive a crash course in the Academy's purpose and general layout and a laundry list of tasks to acclimate to their new home. And this is great. It's something you and I always talk about, um, others as well, which is you want to start with excitement mm -hmm. and then you can go into the explanatory stuff. And that's exactly right. what's happening. Here. You hit them hard and then yep. you go into the fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I noticed that the, the Academy itself has a beautiful map uh, as done by Will Doyle and Stacey Allen. So if uh, if you are a fan of Wild Beyond the Witchlight, it, uh, you're probably going to love this as well. Yeah. So then part three, Intruder Alert. The cadets deliver a crate of supplies to Mert the Merciless, which is a favorite NPC of some of the Watsi staff. 
the head of the academy. So we learned that he now heads this academy, which is a, honestly a disastrous piece of news for the academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you discovered that the cargo contains a surprise that you have to deal with. Yeah. And those three parts then constitute this first out of the four adventures. Yep. And, you know, Mert, the moneylender, we assume is the same uh, as Mert, the merciless. And I don't know if you mentioned that, but it takes place in Nimbral, an island off the Chilton coast. Yeah. Uh, yep. So it's set in the Forgotten Realms, uh, at, at least at the, at the start of the of this first adventure. Yeah, and there's already um, uh, play going on with Spelljammer Academy at the, the virtual weekends. Um, and, um, and, and this was, as you said, written by the AL team and, and designed to be compatible or written, let's say, approved by, engineered by the AL team. And the whole concept of it is that it really plays well with AL yeah. as a, so it can work with all of the organized play endeavors to get people straight into the, the published adventure. Yeah. And I, I, without having read it, I can assume that, you know, each of these parts is probably something that you could run in an hour as they try to do an adventures league at the start of a season to give players something new, but bite-sized to get them into, uh, into the play of that season or that adventure path. Yeah. And one thing I found interesting. So when um, the monster Spelljammer monster compendium was released, that came out both on the D and D website and on D and D beyond. And that D and D beyond purchase had, had, I think just happened or was in the works around then. Um, here we see it only on D&D Beyond. And one thing that saddens me a bit is that the layout in D&D Beyond is really repetitive. Like, it doesn't matter if you're looking at Witchlight, if you're looking at Frostmaiden, if you're looking at Spelljammer Academy, everything looks the same. <laughs> yeah. And I love looking at the format of D&D books. And so even on the Spelljammer Compendium PDF that was available via the D&D website, you could see, you know, the, the beauty of the formatting come through. And it's, it's sort of, a, to, I find it at least disappointing to just see a very plain product and I have no PDF version of it. Yeah. So maybe at the end it'll be compiled or something like that. But I, I worry with the D&D Beyond emphasis mm-hmm. that maybe those days are over for free products. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing as I was scrolling through it. I'm like, okay, cool. I, I want to run this, but I don't want to run this on D&D Beyond the way it is. I love running digitally. Uh, yeah. But I like it in a format that I can more easily use. And, like, and I am non-digital and I don't want to print this out because yeah. it'll look really ugly. So what am I going to reformat it? Like I would love, a, I hope a PDF version of this comes out that looks nice. Looks like the Spelljammers adventure space adventure itself, you know, has that look and feel. Yeah. Whether that comes out, we'll see. Yeah, but like we, I think we had mentioned at one point in, uh, before where the D&D website itself, we were not, we're not getting any updates on it. The updates were all very old. Uh, since the acquisition of D&D Beyond, it's almost weekly or maybe fortnightly that we're getting new content uh, put up on D&D Beyond and not not small bits of content, but really you know, quite a bit. So I think that shows maybe where Wizards is heading now that they have this D&D Beyond portal with which to deliver material and gain new subscribers. Yeah, and, and one thing that all of this content does, which is a little dicey, is how easy is it to find it, right? If I go to D&D Beyond Sources, you know, is my Vecna free piece there? I don't see it. Yeah, I think it disappeared. You know, I, I think I have to go through, like, the original website link or something, or if I search for it, it'll come up. I know I've, I've done that before. And right. same thing with Spelljammer Academy. I don't see it when I go to the sources so yeah. you know and i think that sources thing is getting pretty full so so they're <laughs> going to have to work on those kinds of issues to, to yeah. make it work if dnd beyond is going to be their primary platform yeah true story so will you keep an eye on that and uh if there's anything in the adventure that's out of the ordinary uh we'll talk about it in a next in a subsequent episode uh Next bit of news, while it's not quite D&D news, it is definitely RPG entertainment news. We mentioned last time that uh, the role-playing game Alice is missing. Uh, I think it was put up for a Diana Jones Award, and you know, it, it is gathering traction in the role-playing game world. And now the Hollywood Reporter has said that Paramount has optioned the rights for a movie 
based on the Alice's Missing role-playing game. So last time we were also talking about, you know, these role-playing games becoming more and more mainstream entertainment with the Blades in the Dark uh, uh, show, and now this Alice's Missing role-playing game. And what's even cooler is that the designer of Alice's Missing, Spencer Stark, will be a co-writer of the movie. It is being produced and written, co-written by Becca Gleason, who produces young adult series for Amazon. She will also direct uh, this adaptation. So do you know a lot about Alice is Missing, Teos? I haven't played it. Um, I, I know that it's a, a very interesting format because you, you don't actually speak when you play over an hour and a half. You send text messages back and forth in a group chat mm-hmm. to represent uh, this, this disappearance of I, Alice Briarwood, who's a high school junior in the small town of Silent Falls. Um, I'm, I'm excited to play it. I keep trying to set up a game. I, I, I maybe I'm talking someone into running one for me, so we'll see, but, yeah. but yeah, I have not played it yet. I, I was going to this last semester, teach this game in my class, but it didn't quite work out that I could do it. So, but I may do it next semester, if only because probably some of my students will be more familiar with it. Um, it, it is, it's exactly what you said. You play, a character who is associated with uh, Alice Briarwood, whether it's a sibling or a secret uh, girlfriend or like a long lost friend. Um, And then you get a motivation for your character and then you get a secret for your character. So it could change up from time from, from each play. And then, like you said, it's just 90 minutes of texting either the group (laughs) or each other as you move around the town and try to find out what happened to Alice and where she is. It's a really clever game, and, and we mentioned it last time because Hunter Entertainment was was sort of in in the in the subject we're talking about. But it, it's a really interesting game that shows what the indie space can come up with. Mm-hmm. This particular news story shows that you know there is a recognition by entertainment companies that there is fertile ground here, and and there is enough there are enough people playing these games, right? Playing RPGs who work on movies and so on that they can see these connections and see, mm. Hey, this is a really cool concept that I could feed off. And, and so that idea of RPGs as inspiration for entertainment is pretty cool. Right. Yeah. And hopefully that goes well. Yeah. Um, and maybe this is a good time to, to say, do we have this in, in the news that the, the comic con, no, I don't think we did. So, so that's another piece of news, which is that, uh, Comic-Con is this next week and or this week and it um, there's going to be a booth for D&D that promoting the movie oh, wow. and so does that indicate that everybody's feeling really positive about the movie or is it just because you promote anything right. but that's going to be another big thing right if, if, if D&D, D&D often leads the way and so if D&D can have right. a big showing or at least even big interest level Mm-hmm. That could be huge for these kinds of endeavors. Yeah. And you know, part of me, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about this news as I am about any news where role-playing games get a wider uh, audience, but I'm wondering how a game where the cool aspect of it is texting and not talking. So the characters are not interacting with each other at all, except through mm-hmm. text, how you can capture that in a movie. And if, if it's important to, because as I think about this, right, even in the sort of uh, appendix N, if you will, for, for Alice is missing, uh, you know, Spencer talks about the, the games that, and the, the entertainment that motivated him to do this. And so I, what I hope is that it's able to move past just being another version of this sort of teen drama 13 reasons why Veronica Mars sort of thing, because we've seen that before. We've seen those before and they were great. I think they were done really well, but I don't want another version of that. I want something that captures the essence of the game, but I don't know if making yeah, a movie yeah. of people texting each other for, I mean, for 90 I, minutes is, is great. Yeah, there can be clever stuff like, like Ms. Marvel does the whole, um, uh, that the new show has, has, uh, sort of text aspects to it that will come in and, and that we've seen other properties do that where, where there'll be the, you know, the words sort of float across the screen in evocative ways. And right. so maybe there's something like that, that, that will be a, um, feel like a strong theme of it. 
I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting to see. So we are, but, we will definitely be keeping yeah. our eye on this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the any have the any nominations have been announced. This, if you're not aware, is a yearly award. Uh, you can submit your work to the any judges. The judges are voted on the previous year, so then the judges will uh, try to read all of the submissions and then choose those that they feel are worthy of nomination. And then uh, it is voted on by everyone who wants to based on those judge nominations. Which is a fascinating way of doing it. And uh, and we talk about this every year. It's, it's a, the NEs gets criticism because they, uh, there've been all kinds of things over the years, right? There've been uh, padding of judges Mm -hmm. because the judges can't have worked in the industry. So if you've got a buddy who doesn't do work, but they're your buddy, they could apply to be a judge. And there have been accusations of that in the past. Um, there have been problems with how you just can drum up a fan base. And so there are years where, you know, Pathfinder ran, no one else could win anything. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, so there are always ups and downs to this, but, but as much as there are these problems to it, then he's probably has as much recognition in the award space as anything else. Mm-hmm. And for sure, companies especially smaller ones they thrive when they're selected and being able to say that you're any nominated is an enormous achievement uh rightfully so for some, you know something that you should be proud of when this happens yep and the list of nominees is long you can you know you can find them uh any award any dash awards.com but you know a few of the highlights um uncaged goddesses uh, gets a nod for best adventure as well as cover and interior art uh, digital aid the best digital aid includes the dragon prince role-playing game digital tool set uh, for best non-digital aid it's the fate accessibility toolkit by evil hat is something that i've seen and i've worked with evil hat was also nominated for cover art and interior art for thirsty sword lesbians uh, you want to take over some here yeah, uh, Sly Flourish, best electronic book for the Lazy DM's Companion and best blog. Mm-hmm. Um, and best game includes Thirsty, Thirsty Sword Lesbians and Root. Uh, a number of really nice layout examples, Octo and Cthulhu, Delta Green, Nova. Um, the One interesting thing, or two interesting things, best monster adversary includes three DM's Guild products, Arch Villain Archive, Home Field Advantage, and the English-Italian product Nightfell Bestiary. And best organized play, last year we talked about how somehow it ended up with all these Cthulhu programs, which were like essentially the DMs Guild for Call of Cthulhu, right. somehow lumped into organized play. This time it's nothing but actual organized play adventures, though I'll note that they're all 5EAL organized play adventures, which would be cool if other programs were, but I think it's just a time when other programs are not a, a, in a very strong place. Yeah. Um, but congratula- congratulations to people like Paul Gabat, Anthony Joyce. Chu King Tan, Robbie Pleasant, and Douglas Bouchong, who all had their adventures nominated. That's really cool. Um, best podcast includes Kill Every Monster, which has an excellent flump episode. Hmm. Haunted West for Best Rules. Taldore Campaign Setting Reborn, which is excellent from Critical Role. Uh, they are up for Best Setting. Best Writing includes the Dune RPG Core Rulebook and Cult Beyond Darkness and Madness. And the product of the year... Dune, Jiangxi, Root, Thirsty Sword Lesbians, Uncaged Goddesses, and more. So a lot of strong things if you've been following anything on the indie game scene uh, or mid-game scene. You know, you've probably heard of some of these products. So exciting to see. And, and now it's up to the fans to decide which of these win. But for me, this is always sort of the most important stage. Yeah, being nominated is, you know, it shows that you've at least made a product and got it into a form where, the the judges can at least say yes this is worth looking at further so congratulations to all the nominees uh an actual play of the radiant citadel adventure the fiend of mine of, of hollow mine is out there uh this is on dnd beyond and it organized this great playthrough of the, that adventure again fiend of hollow mine i always want to say hollow mind uh and it was written by the friend of the show and prior guest, Mario Ortegaon. Hey, uh, Mario. Yep. And uh, the, it was DM'd. Well, why don't, you, why don't you talk about it? 
Yeah, so the DM is the awesome Eugenio Vargas. And uh, I mean, DM Jazzy Hands on Twitter. He's just incredible, such mm-hmm. a nice person. And seeing his joy as he ran this table for the players who were Matt Mercer, <laughs> not bad, yeah. uh, Anjali Bimani, uh, Robbie Damon, uh, who has been involved in, in the Critical Row shows in the past, uh, Michael Galvis from DD Beyond and Amy Dallin from DD Beyond. So just a, a great set of, of players and, and a real a real achievement just for, for the book and, and for Mario and for Eugenio. And just so really happy to see this kind of spotlight. The set was unbelievable, mm-hmm. made to look, I mean, just covered in like flowers and fruit, made to look sort of like a Mexican Day of the Dead type of setup, which reflects the adventure. Um, so really great way to promote the book, which comes out on July 19th, Radiant Citadel. So check this out. It's, it's really, if you like a, a, a live, if you want a good live play experience, this is a good example of that. And we've got the link in the show notes. Yep. Uh, from, from YouTube to Twitter, Watsi now has a Japanese Twitter and YouTube channel starting up. Uh, the, the at Wizards DND JP Twitter account said, more information about the future will be announced later in July. Please look forward to it. So, We've talked before about sort of localization and translations and bringing the game uh, to other countries in their native languages and making experiences for them. And so this is at least a first step in that for Japan. Yeah, I think folks are really curious about the, you know, there were some some uh, protests organized by people who play RPGs in Japan when the Japanese production shut down because Japan had been translating through their partnerships uh, every single book, almost close to every single book. And I think starting in Tasha is just suddenly nothing was being translated when the contract ended. And so this is an example where, you know, some countries had localizations that weren't working. Japan was, and yet it lost out, right? It, It lost because of this. And so I know there are a lot of people in Japan who are hoping that this will spring back up properly so they can get things so we'll, I'm, I'm following this twitter account to see what will happen and, and whether there there's a strong push here for japan uh yes we now have another free solo hero forge scenario into the northlands if you remember correctly uh hero quest was kickstarted ish uh, by wizards on their own so, uh on their own crowdfunding platform uh, a gentleman by the name of Teas Abadia wrote one of those uh, adventures, I believe. And now we get another free one by Doug Hopkins. This one is a solo adventure, which you could prepare, uh, prepare you for the upcoming Frozen Horror Expansion Pack, which will be re-released in August. Um, it includes a play test ru- the playtest rules for bringing an animal companion along on your Hero Forge quest. Yeah, it's very cool. I'm excited to play this. It's fun that it's solo. So if you have the set, but you can't get together with friends, you can play through this. Um, and it, it shows the the love and care that Doug Hopkins has for everything Hero Quest. Um, and it also hopefully indicates the fact that that we keep seeing these scenarios roll out. You know, maybe everything will slowly but surely come out in a way that one can can uh, purchase all of these expansions. So even if you didn't do the crowdfunding, because a lot of folks didn't. Uh, or didn't get the full set, and then they want those other pieces, then maybe eventually even the ones that, that I wrote, um, you know, will, will come out and, and you can, you know, purchase all those. So, so there's there's hope here and clearly, and maybe new stuff, right? Maybe there's more that'll come out in the future it would be really fun. Yeah. Speaking of on the board playing, uh, we have WizKids announcing that there are two D&D onslaught onslaught factions that will release in 2023 if you remember a few episodes ago we talked about dnd onslaught being the competitive skirmish game kind of like dnd minis or dungeon command uh in the past and it was supposed to have been released already or soon but they they pushed it off a little bit so the base set is now releasing in january of 2023 the base set will provide the Zentarum and Harper factions with 12 minis and cards and the base game components. The base set is going to be $147. Then there are two expansions, uh, the Red Wizards and the Many Arrow faction packs. 
Uh, these were released in February at the cost of $63 each. Uh, so that's for just a few minis and a few cards. That's, that's a pretty stiff cost, but Hey, this is WizKids. kids. <laughs> <laughs> Whiz kids. I mean, and this is where I think of dungeon command. I, I can't believe that game didn't make it because oh, it was such so a good game. Well priced and it yeah. was a good game. Uh, and and it was fun, and it came with terrain tiles and minis at a super affordable price, very reasonably priced. And and this is a whole lot more. But I mean, I still hope it does well. Um, there's there was also an announcement here that there will be an organized play program for stores, mm-hmm. and this includes kits. This is a typical WizKids thing that they do for for the various programs. So they're going to have kit featuring a mimic mini and cards that you can get for playing in in the competitive uh, play scenario so lo- local gaming stores are supposed to get this in sometime around january so you can get the base set play at your store if they're offering it and get yourself a mimic yeah I- i'm not a big fan generally of this competitive skirmishy type of game sure. uh, but i love dungeon command it just hit all the right notes for me and i played it quite a bit and, and i was waiting for it to really explode and play at conventions and, and it just didn't you know after the the first six or so sets it it well, Stop. For a long like, time, oh. people people would say, "How do I get started with minis?" And I'd say, "Oh, buy a dungeon command set because yeah. it's like one box. You'll get terrain tiles. You'll get minis that are basically color coded or sort of yeah. thematic. Uh, and if so, if you needed NPCs, you know, you buy the set that had all these NPCs in it. If you needed, you know, drow and spiders or trolls or demons, like you could just get one of these boxes and you'd get, you know, a goblin group or whatever. And it was just super thematic and excellent. And uh, I missed that. So tell me about this other WizKids product, the book tabs. Yeah, this was fun. I was just, you know, looking around at miniature market like I shouldn't. And <laughs> uh, I happened upon these things that I have not heard anyone else talk about, which is WizKids book tabs. These are coming out in August. And there are two packages of page tabs, which are meant to be added to your player's handbook or DMG. So, so each one covers one of the books. And they are adhesive tabs, so they do have a sort of warning that it could discolor or tear your book because, I mean, adhesive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's a one-way trip is the way I'd look at it. But you get to stick them in the way a lot of people will. You'll see this if you go to conventions. A lot of people will do this, mark up their own books with little, like, stick it tabs or post-it notes. And so this will do it for you. But it comes, uh, they're blank ones, and then they are pre-labeled. And it's a whole slew of them. The player's handbook has the most 24 major tabs, 144 smaller sections. So if you need to find, you know, a very particular thing, you can get the sticker for that and put it in in the book as a little tab on the side of your book. So you can easily turn to those pages. Um, So I think it's pretty neat. And when I shared it online, uh, people were were very uh, interested in in it. Mm -hmm. it. It made a big impression. They're also not too bad. They're nine bucks you know, eight fifty something like that each one. So reasonable spend yeah. to have a nice benefit. Cool. And that is our news for the week, which leads us to our main topic: five E revisited. So here's 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 where we're starting our starting point. It's been almost ten years. It's been, actually been more than ten years since the release of the first public playtest packet of D and D Next. And it's been now over eight years since the release of the first starter set. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, (laughs) many editions did not last this long. Right. Not even close to this long. So based on where we started, on where we started with the Indie Next and the history of the game that came before and how it's gone since 2014 when the books were released, what have we learned and what can we expect going forward for D&D, for the game, for the brand, for, for you know, business side, all of it, all of it. Yeah. So before we can talk about what's going to happen, like good historians, we need to talk about what's been. Yeah. So May of 2012, we saw the release of the first playtest packet of D&D Next. In July of 2014, so just over two years later, we saw the release of the starter set in August. Uh, we saw the re- release of the player's handbook. And then in the months following, we saw the monster manual and the dungeon master's guide tyranny of dragons 
and the first Adventures League Adventures were also released in August of 2014. So eight years coming up. How did we feel about that? How did we feel about the the play test, about the release, about 4E and the lessons and, and everything that happened? Yeah. I mean, it, it's actually hard to, to really put yourself, if you were around back then, it's probably hard to think back on how it felt when those books were first coming out and how uncertain we all were about this edition. Like there had been so many, if, if you remember like the blog posts that would be posted by various D&D designers that would say, you know, oh, maybe there's going to be modularity, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, we're going to strive for this kind of play or that kind of play. And, and, and the play tests would sort of go back and forth. Each play test packet might have a wildly different system that would show up and then disappear and then maybe reappear again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, we just had no understanding of whether this edition would be successful. And I recall, like at a convention, one of the designers saying to me, you know, we expect that this adventure, this edition will be around forever. This is the last edition of D&D. And I thought to myself, that's impossible. And, and how naive. And then every year that's gone since, I've felt a little more like, well, maybe they, could they have known what they're talking about? And, and I don't think any one edition can last forever. And I think there are a lot of business reasons why you want to shift away. Yeah. But they were in some ways more right than wrong in that it really has done fantastically well and stood the test yeah. time well. Yeah, I, I think I think they whoever said that, and I heard more than one person say that, both internally at Wizards and externally. Uh, I think they might be right for the or might have been closer to right, but for the wrong reason. Right? Mm-hmm. I think the reason that they were saying this is going to be the last edition wasn't because it was going to do well, but because it wasn't going to do well, <laughs> right? B- because they didn't plan on making any more game. They were going to say, here is the game. Hopefully we can make money branding. Hopefully yeah. we can make money in other spheres that attach to D&D because the actual role-playing game itself isn't worth the bother of spending the money to make. Yeah. Now, I mean, you remember that, how small the team, the D&D team was? It was constantly criticized for how few people worked there. Yeah. <laughs> and because, I mean, what, what was the normal cycle? They would hire a bunch of people for a new edition, and then they would let everyone go at Christmas time, which, yeah. of course, the, is done for business reasons, not for spite. But right. still, it, <laughs> right, it's a horrible precedent, yeah. and it, it's a bad public relations nightmare to, you know, on December 15th, have it come out that, oh, you just fired, you know, 12 people from your staff. Yeah. And, and so, especially with the, the four E's, no, the four E sales weren't terrible, but they also weren't great. And so I'm wondering if, you know, people at Hasbro were saying we make more money off licensing than we do off the game. So why bother trying to make a new game every 10 years? Well, you know, and not to derail this conversation, but I just want to put in there that as I read more and more of these accounts of D&D's history and sales, one of the things that's surprising to me is that it doesn't seem like in D&D's history, licensing has ever saved it or been this enormous success story. Uh, If you're around in the 80s, you might remember there were beach towels, there were, uh, you know, you could drive a little D&D like, tricycle around you could get birthday plates you know all this sort of Mm -hmm. stuff and yet there's no evidence that that stuff was a giant sales piece like if you look at the revenue charts and so on the the book is the books are doing really well and it's not clear that this was any savior uh in fact it's things like novels that that do well but so i don't i don't know i'm sort of curious about that concept of, of whether that's even a real thing obviously it works for companies like star wars and things like that where there's this massive amounts of stuff being licensed but i i don't know I'm, I'm curious as to whether that's uh truly a thing that 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 is possible uh, maybe we'll see it i don't think we've seen it so far that there's massive licensing for 5e going on filling the coffers 
true. Well, we don't know, right? We don't, we don't know. I I've heard it said that more money is made in licensing or before 5e more money was made from licensing than from the sale of the game. I'd be curious to see if I've heard that said straight up and, and now part of the reason for that though, is we might be talking about profit and not revenue. Right. right. If we're if we're talking about licensing, who do you need? You need a person or two people to approve the licensing and go over things. When you make a game, you need designers, editors, salespeople, all of that. So maybe the game sales is more, but the cost to make the game is more as well. Uh, so that that may be part of it. Well, maybe at some point we can get an expert in and ask them what they think about that licensing portion if happen to know yeah. and have any data. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, so we 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 get five E. We're not sure what it's how it's going to do. We know that it's been play tested for two years by <laughs> by hundreds of thousands of people in a public play test. We also know that it was also play tested, like alpha versions were also play tested. Uh, by people behind the scenes to make it ready for a public play test. And then lo and behold, two years later, we get the first books come coming out. People tend to like it. It tends to be getting good reviews. Play seems to be fairly uh, streamlined. Uh, We get actual plays happening and people enjoying to watch people play, which is helpful. We get, uh very public and uh exciting uses of the game in media aka stranger things uh-huh. uh, and sure enough after a couple of years sales are doing well but not only are sales doing well but they're increasing which yeah. is unprecedented play continues to increase which is unprecedented brand awareness shoots higher than it ever has before in a positive way, which is unprecedented. Yeah. Um, and, and just to, for those who don't know, right. That the typical way that, and, and it's not just typical, the way that every RPG works is you release your core books and you have your best sales ever within that first year. And then sales begin to decline no matter what you try to do. Uh, because the people who are attracted to it bought it and now they bought it. They're not going to buy it again. Uh, and it just starts petering out and you release supplements, which push it back up a bit because they draw some attention. But they the supplements sell less because every single thing you sell appeals to a smart, slightly smaller part of a demographic. Make a book mm-hmm. of undead. Someone out there doesn't like undead. So your sales decrease every single time. And eventually the only thing you can do is either do a new game or relaunch a new edition. Mm-hmm. And D&D 5e has not seen that in any way, shape, or form. They've seen the opposite, which is everything just keeps selling at high levels. And that is what's really, truly unprecedented. Yeah. They, they released, they being Wizards of the Coast in 2021, released information saying that 2020 was the best year of sales in D&D history, uh, while they admitted that they didn't have exact numbers from the days of TSR. Um, yeah. So rather than having that, publishing death cycle that Teos just described. They had seven consecutive years of growth rather than decline. And in fact, uh, 2019, 2020 saw a 33% growth in sales over 2019. So even, you know, that many years, six or seven years after the game release, there were still growth. And another thing was, Normally, if you do see a spike in growth, it's in the player's handbook and that's it. You know, some, something comes out, D&D comes back into the public consciousness, people buy the player's handbook. Not only were they seeing an increase in sales in the player's handbook, they were also seeing increases of, of, in sales of the Monster Manual and the Dungeon Master's Guide, which means yeah. not only are people buying it to play it, they're buying it to run it, which yeah. is a very, very good thing for a role-playing game. And, and these books are beating out top-selling authors on the author lists. Um, they are, like at my local gaming store, I saw stacks of hundreds of books of one of the, one of the source books that was coming out. Mm-hmm. And, and I just couldn't believe how many books there were. 
and they said to me, well, these are basically already sold. Mm-hmm. Like these, we're just supplying what we know will sell this first week. We already have more orders coming in hundreds of books, not dozens, not a few to put on a shelf. Like this is one gaming store. Right. And, and D and D has gotten to the point where for some of these big releases, they are selling out the print run on pre-orders from stores and Amazon and so on. And they're immediately going to press again. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's really incredible. Yeah. To just more anecdotal evidence, I went to a local large, not local because I have to drive anywhere to get anywhere where I live, <laughs> but a large chain bookstore went into the, thought I was going into what is typically a very small role-playing game section, maybe one shelf. It was a quarter of the store <laughs> was set aside for role-playing games. And you know, it wasn't just all of the Wizards of the Coast things. It was... Keith Ammon's book or books yeah. with their yeah. own little display. And, you know, these supplements that, from other publishers were all there and obviously selling well. And yeah. just, you know, just an amazing, uh, amazing thing to see after, you know, being in this industry for 20 some years and knowing the ups and downs of, of the publishing world. And yet, we're not going to stay with 5e that's what's amazing here right and 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 th- this is this is where we we Tails and I look at each other with our heads sort of tilted going hmm, hmm what does this mean and this is sort of what is driving this whole conversation last year D&D announced that it would get a new edition in 2024 to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the founding of D&D in 1974 so we were told during D&D Celebration on the Future of D&D panel that the edition, this new edition in 2024, would be backwards compatible. We assume backwards compatible with 5e. <laughs> right. right yeah. uh, so since that time, we've seen Unearthed Arcana uh, articles that play with feats and subclasses and backgrounds and monsters and settings and makes changes. Uh, some of the recent books like uh, Monsters of the Multiverse, have tweaked how monster design looks to try to simplify it, remove choices that aren't optimal for dungeon masters to do to challenge the party, lessen the reliance on spell lists, although it doesn't do so consistently. <laughs> right. Uh, so what, what, what are we thinking? What, are we, uh, what, are, what, what does this make us think about? Yeah, I mean, it, it makes us, I mean, it makes me wonder when I'm seeing Monsters of the Multiverse, when I'm seeing these Unearthed Arcana uh, things, are these 5.5 or whatever you want to call it um, choices? Are they indicative of that? Are, are they tests of that? Will there be different tests? And maybe this has nothing to do with 5.5. Um, maybe Monsters of the Most, Monsters of the Multiverse already is 5.5. Maybe that's as far as it's going. Like, you know, I don't know. And, and, and it causes, it, it's caused a conversation in the space where people say, well, what should be changed for 5.5? How far should it go? And I think we all want to intrinsically accept this idea that it's great to be backwards compatible. But then we also will say, gee, I wish the CR system was completely different. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the and this has been true of any previous edition where designers themselves, as they worked on things, would say like, well, you know, I wanted to not touch that because it works so well. But then as I start playing around with it, you go, boy, I wish I could change that. Yeah. And so maybe you do or maybe you don't. And and that's that's the question I think that's really at the heart of this is how far will the designers go? And And have we seen any indications of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's going to be fascinating. You know, imagine if 5.5 looks very different or if it looks just like Monsters of the Multiverse in the game now. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we will get into all of this over the next few weeks as we, uh, as we, we talk about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look back at 5e's design. Eight years in since the release of the books, uh, the core books, you know, we can look back at the initial design, think it through, what might change, what might not change. As Teo said earlier, we, he and I, are not constrained the way that the people sitting in uh, Renton, Washington are 
based on the needs of marketing and sales and brand and, and licensing and et cetera, et cetera. So we, with the complete freedom that we have, what might we change? And we'll look at recent releases from Tasha's to Fizzbands to the UA articles to sort of try to ferret out what we think Watsi will be thinking about. So we're going to start by going through the 5e player's handbook and, and looking at it. But before we do, I want to take one more little sidestep. Uh-huh. And, and to keep these things in mind is at its core, D&D is a tabletop role-playing game. So what do all of those things mean? Well, tabletop means it's not on a computer. Or is it? <laughs> right. So tabletop used to be said to differentiate from a computer game, uh, whether it be a PC game or a console game or whatever. But now that we have moved heavily into the digital space as a tabletop game, that's going to play into what is what the game is going to be. And, and I know that you will get some designers that say, we, we didn't think about that. We didn't worry about that. We were just told to make the best game we could. So that's what we tried to do. But at some point, there is no way that business or technology does not get, uh, find its slimy tendrils <laughs> uh, right. crawling into the game design. Well, uh, and the name of the game is, is entertainment rather than just book publishing, right? Yeah. And so... D&D has to consider everything that entails that publishing aspect, that, that larger entertainment aspect, more than just the, the publishing aspect. Mm-hmm. So we have tabletop and now we have role-playing game. So we know that role-playing is in general inhabiting the skin of another being, whether it be creature or elf or robot or whatever. So that's the role-playing side of things. However, we have seen role-playing games where you might play an emotion and the other characters play other emotions and you all make up one person in that game. You could play as role-playing wise as pretty much anything or be anything or be asked to, to do anything. Uh, so there's the role-playing part. Then we have game. And the game and the role-playing part sometimes work together very well and sometimes they are at odds and they are chafing at each other and making the final product more difficult to design as opposed to easier to design. So with, you know, I I want to always be hearkening back to the fact that while we are fans of D and D and fans of 5e, we may be talking about things that really turn the game on its ear. Right. And make it almost completely different from what we've already seen. And, and sometimes from that, on that previous point that you're making, like sometimes when you are designing something, it's great, it's wonderful, but you realize that continuing along that line leads you into a dead end design wise and growth wise. Mm-hmm. And right. so it may work for a certain amount of time, but you want to change that so that you have a greater design space to really last the length of what you're trying to design. And, 5e you know wasn't while it may have been made with the idea of being the last role-playing game version ever it wasn't designed with the idea of and keep creating supplements every year with the game being this successful and so sometimes you get to that point where you know you feel a little boxed into a corner design wise yeah yeah and i mean that nothing makes that point more than 4e and spells sure because 4e had spells but they weren't spells as we think of them from previous editions Uh so getting rid of spells made 4e a much better game Uh i think but it made it less of a great DD experience for people who were used to spells and for the branding of it and exactly all of that so Uh while while we may talk about what is a great game there may be things that are in DD that make it a worse game for being in the game, but are still going to be in there because it has to be because yeah. it's D and D. And I think the question of, of to what extent you try to make your game, for example, easier to stream mm-hmm. are great questions because 
there isn't fantastic data on that. I mean, I, I, I know that we hear numbers, but I don't know where those numbers come from or to what extent we can trust them. And, and what I do know is that if I look at the sales of some books and I look at the sales of other books and those books, you know, one category of books are books that should have a huge streaming support. Mm-hmm. Let's say critical role, right? Mm-hmm. Anything critical role should have this legion of fans motivated by streaming. And if streaming is causing all kinds of purchases, well, then that should go hand in hand. And yet those are not the highest selling books. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell us about the theory? It might tell us nothing right. or it might tell us something. And so there may be some danger in, you know, uh, mm-hmm. hooking your cart to the horse of, of virtual tabletop may, may not be the only, you know, maybe that's not the, the answer. Yep. And that brings us to my last point about this, just in terms of tabletop role-playing games, is it's also a business. So we have new technologies, we have new modes of publishing, we have new norms for entertainment, and people willing or not willing to spend their disposable income. And Teo said this earlier, but I want to reiterate it, the business side of things, if they, they being Wizards of the Coast, want to make sure that they can be putting out 5.5 or 6E or whatever they want to call it, books in 10 years, that is going to, by definition, change the way that this game is designed because business needs are going to dictate game mechanics. Maybe not at the very, very granular level, but you know that they're not going to get rid of a class system if the best-selling books are books of subclasses or new classes or something related to classes. A very simple example is, you know, if D&D believes, if Wizards believes that offering a free preview on D&D Beyond is money, right? If that Mm -hmm. boosts your sales substantially, then every book should be written so that it has something that you can give away for free or should involve an auxiliary team building upon it so that that thing can be given away for free, right? Exactly. And, and so that just drives, so the, the technology, the mode of publishing, as you said, drives that approach and should. And so then we might expect that. But of course, life is always giving us new data and new experiences and new trends. And so that's where over time it might change and we might have to adjust, but we'll see. All right. So we're getting close to the end of what we need to do, but we're going to just talk briefly about the introduction of the 5e player's handbook and what's in it and what that makes us think for the rest of the book as we talk about it. So I will let Teos have the, have the word. Yeah. There. So, and I invite the, the, the listeners to, to, you know, if you folks at home to, to do this as well, like crack open these, these books I almost said old, <laughs> these current books <laughs> that are quite, you know, have a few years to them, but crack them up and, and look at them uh, as if you were reading them for the first time. And it, it's a quite fascinating thing to do. And the introduction is something like that, because it's an interesting piece that you, it's very important the first time you read this book to have a really good introduction that welcomes you, excites you, uh, that helps you if you're a new person. Once you understand it, you never need to look at the section again. And so it may have been an incredibly long time since we looked at this section. Um, This introduction to the player's handbook shares the concept of the game. It reviews the dice, the core interplay between DM and player with a couple of examples, uh, what adventures are like, the three pillars of play, and the idea that the world is magical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the first question I have then is... Who is this introduction for? Is this introduction for brand new people who have never even heard of RPGs? Is this introduction for people who have played previously, but just need a refresher? Um, is it is it for more than one type of person? And if so, how do you provide relevant details and content to keep all of the different audiences you might have uh, you know, active and listening and paying attention uh, because that, that's, that's one of the hardest things in role-playing games is to hit that tone to capture as many people as you can and not put anyone off by forgetting something or not being clear enough or being too basic and getting ignored by people who are already 
RPG veterans? Yeah. It's, it's really a, a fantastic question. And I, I don't, I don't know the answer. Um, I mean, I want to say that the point of this should be a new player because the, the business drive, <laughs> we're talking about business again, yeah. the business drive is new player acquisition. Mm-hmm. And so in theory, that's what that should be. Job one is introduce the new player. But I also like to think that you need to write it. So it's fun for anybody to read. And even if you're skimming it or reading it quickly, it should work for, for anybody. And that's already a tall order. Mm-hmm. So what with technology now, do you need an introduction that explains what the game is when you could just say, go to this site or that, you know, it, it's, it's hard to put links in books because links always change. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's stronger to introduce someone to a game visually through YouTube, through your own website by using graphics and using gameplay examples and using great graphics to not only catch your eye, but to actually explain things, you know, in a, in a clearer way. So uh, you mentioned in our notes that the new starter set, when it comes out uh, soon, will have QR codes that lead you to online tutorials. We, we yeah. can probably expect that to happen in the new in a new player's handbook. And I think that will be true though. You run into all kinds of issues. Like I, I recall when I first um, ran games in Spanish and I realized that many people in other countries are connecting via mobile phone. And so mm-hmm. if you tried to play roll 20 at that time, it was not something you could really pull off on someone's phone. It's gotten better, mm-hmm. but it's still a tough interface because there's just, you know, the zoom level is, is, is rough. And so yeah. it takes a little work. And if you're on a slow connection, that is hard, right? If you're working off of cell service and the same can be true of this. If you go to the player's handbook, if the new version of the player's handbook has this QR code and you scan it, um, how easy is it to read that on an, an old phone that isn't, you know, uh, the biggest screen and the nicest display. And, you know, so how, how easy is it to, to be from another country and, and load this up? because I think international growth is hugely important should be another aspect that people are, are pushing for at wizards. Um, so it's tough, right. And I'm very curious when this new starter set comes out, how easy that will be. They, they have said they're going to translate it, for example. Right. So how mm-hmm. easy will it be for me to pull it up on my phone in Spanish and, and have that really teach me the game. Yeah. And, and here's here, I'm going to blow your mind now, Taylor. So you ready? 6E 5.5, whatever you want to call it is a box set to to start rather than a big Uh hardcover player's handbook with the basic rules in a pamphlety form, some things, and then all of these handouts, all of these QR codes, all of this way to access everything that you need online. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that, first of all, I think that cuts down on production costs. Sure. Uh, You're not, publishing a you know 300 page book and then a 250 page book and then a 400 page book with the player's handbook dungeon master's guide master manual it's it's all there online yeah i suspect we're not going to go there yet i think that might be a, a step too far in that i think we still see very vital print sales and i think that i think there is an understanding a belief that your print experience is still really important. And I would say it certainly is for me mm-hmm. that if I read the introduction and the introduction is a QR code, that would be disappointing to me. If it's a good introduction that has a QR code that can get me to another level, or if I don't want to read all these words because words are terrible to, for me, mm-hmm. uh, or I'm reading in a different, in my second language, and I would like to go to a QR code to, to see it in my, first language then that all of that is great right mm-hmm. yeah. so I, I suspect we're not quite ready to say this is mostly a digital experience okay i i agree with you i am not that person though i mm-hmm. i have not bought a hardcover book in a long time for 5e God, it hurts my soul to hear Does, that doesn't it <laughs> um i 
I think every, pretty much every hardcover edition I've got, I've got because I was a freelancer for them. So uh-huh. I got it for free and I rarely, rarely open them. Everything that I use is on D&D Beyond, uh, including adventures. Uh, although, I, like I said, I prefer the PDF, um, like the two column, yeah. sort of able to see things better. Uh, but yeah, every, I run everything online. I, so uh-huh. I, I, I agree with you. I think that would be a step too far. But I wonder if there might be a more of a digital push than we've seen yeah. in the past. I mean, we're probably not too far from it. And I, I'm sure there are a lot of folks who would just take it digitally. That's super curious, super interesting. Yeah. Um, and some of it is, you know, how, we don't know. I don't think we know a lot about how to properly teach online. So one of the important questions is, well, if you take people out of the book, and we go to, to the, the digital realm for teaching. Are we doing a good job in that digital realm? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and part of that then has to do with how complicated the game is. Mm-hmm. Because there are great ways to learn. I uh, think of a game like Gloomhaven or uh, just some of the more complicated board games where yeah. there are now incredible t- tutorial videos out there that show you everything you need to know. Um, and a lot of people do that rather than read the rules because it's just, point. it's harder for us to parse them sometimes, especially as our attention spans get yeah. a little bit less and less and less. I speak for myself here, but my attention span is about half of what it used to be. Uh, yeah. So, you know, all of that, I mean, this is, we're just talking about the introduction and we're coming up with, <laughs> with all of these things. Yeah. Uh, so, but- Here's another thing, right? So yeah. you know, I was reading the introduction and it mentions the multiverse, which I thought was kind of funny. I, I kind of forgot it had. And so that's another aspect where that could be mentioned uh, more strongly and maybe in, in, uh, in different ways than it, than it was in the original book. Yeah. Um, to just prepare from the very beginning the reader for this concept, right? Of, mm-hmm. and, and, and to to create a less canonical dependency and a more... Right. These are stories we're telling and they can be told in different ways and in different worlds and they can come together or not. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's important in a, in a lot of ways. It's important for what you just said to sort of help people understand that an elf in one world is different than an elf in another world. Um, but it's also great marketing, right? It's great to, to give these hints of what's coming to get people excited about the, this game is is sword and sorcery, but there is a horror version out there. There is a space version out there, and boy, I can't wait to see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that is something that you know. When it comes to things that I would like to see change, um, I think awakening those the right you know without overloading, providing that window into the, that this game really can be yours and can be expressed in many different ways. Uh, would be great. I think of like the conversational style of 13th age um, or other RPGs that have done this where, where they, they, they really speak to you. Like it's your friend talking to you mm-hmm. um, and, and, and pointing out how this can play out for you over time, how this hobby can be rewarding, how you can get out of it. So many wonderful things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes. The The other you know, I'm going to wait for next time. I think we'll 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 stop there, uh, where we we're going to talk talk through the player's handbook, building characters, yeah. you know, races and ancestries, classes, everything. We're going to go through from tip to bottom. So that'll be exciting. I'm because yeah, just even in the building a character section, there are a lot of things that I go, oh, wow, wow, that could all change. You can see how somebody might want to change that. Oh yeah, so I'm excited for next time too. For sure, for sure. So, Teos, thank you for sharing your insights and your excitement about D&D with me. Same, Sean. And thank you to all our listeners out there for sharing your excitement about D&D with us. If you would like to talk to us, you can do so by going to various places. Uh, you can also become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, where can people find you or talk to you on social media? 
find me at alphastream.org. From there, you can reach my YouTube and other efforts. On Twitter, I'm at alphastream. How about you, Sean? I am on Twitter at Sean Merwin. I am also at the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. You can leave some comments for us on our YouTube channel, the Misdirected Mark YouTube channel. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So Teos, now that we've started to dive into the past, the present, and the future of D&D, what are we going to do now? Ooh, well, you know, I want to load up a simulator and kill some monsters and then get graded on it in space. In space, no one can hear you gain levels. <laughs>